Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, I'm having a conversation today with Dr. Jafis Ponsian. Jafis is a senior lecturer and researcher in Tanzania's uh, Mukawa University College of Education. He is passionate about political economy matters, especially in the extractive sector and governance issues in Africa in general. Jeffers, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Sheila. I am pleased to be here and thank you for having me here. That's wonderful. So what do we know about the state of minerals and value addition policies in Africa today? Um, uh, thank you, Sheila. Uh, I think that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and quite timely, given the fact that uh, minerals have been central to African economies um, over time, uh, since the colonial period up to the present, um, African countries that are rich in minerals have uh, tended to focus much of their attention on extraction of resources, of mineral resources. And it is becoming more um, pertinent now that the world is moving towards uh, an increased demand for critical minerals and Africa is geo, uh, geostrategically located um, with a, quite a good quantities of um, critical minerals. Um, that's one. But two, it's more interesting given the 2009 um, Africa Mining Vision and the commitment of uh, African countries to um, gauge their resource-based industrialization of minerals um, and move away from export of uh, raw minerals to promoting of um, industrial activities based on mining, which is where um, value addition comes in. So you see quite a lot of talk across Africa um, on the need uh, and the importance of adding value on minerals, processing minerals locally uh, for job creation, for um, creating uh, more linkages between the mining sector and the rest of uh, the economy and for sparring uh, industrialization across um, the continent. Um, in order to move away from that dependence of commodity on commodity exports, which is um, uh, unreliable and does not move Africa away from um, that historical dependence, um, which has characterized uh, not only the mining sector, but the entire economy. Mm. So uh, how successful are uh, these uh, value addition uh, policies in the region and as espoused, for instance, by the Africa Mining Vision? Yeah, it's um, uh, thanks for that question again. Um, I, I, I would say Africa is known for crafting uh, good policies, good uh, strategies, um, but you don't get to see much when it comes to implementation. So yes, 
uh, African countries have committed themselves to value addition. They have put in place uh, local-based uh, policies uh, to promote that, um, picking up from the Africa mining vision. But uh, you still do not see much happening in terms of that value addition, in terms of processing of minerals uh, within the African countries. So it it is still much more of a talk than uh, of a practice. Um, briefly, I can say so. Sure. So to succeed then, what are some of the things that we should do to move uh, from the Jewish theoretical uh, context to the actual practical implementation of these well-thought-out ideas? Um, uh, I will talk about that at two levels, um, one at a, at, at a country level and then at a regional level. Um, at the country level, I think we need to focus much more on our priorities. Um, what do we prioritize? That's one. Um, do we prioritize investing our limited resources um, in activities that can generate much more value uh, to our people and to our economies? Or do we just uh, prioritize on extractivist politics where our resources, limited resources are spent on um, uh, I would say on um, expenditures that do not uh, take us to uh, where we want to be. And uh, linked to that, I would uh, say that uh, the need of improving our governance structures and, and our accountability, uh, having political systems and uh, leadership that's more focused on promoting production than uh, consumption, um, industrial production. So that's at, at, at the country level. But uh, at the regional level, I think uh, there is no way African individual African countries can uh, successfully um, promote value addition in the mining sector. Uh, because of uh, those, the limited resources and capacity um, at country level. So I think there is need to come together, pull resources together, probably at the regional level, and have regional-based um, value addition hubs, mineral value addition hubs. Um, so for example, you could have a, the, the Eastern African uh, uh, mineral processing or value addition hub that captures uh, all the Eastern African countries uh, to Congo. So you pull together the resources um, and you go uh, you go into that as uh, from a Pan-Africanist perspective. So if we can pull resources together um, and forget our nationalist uh, boundaries, uh, see ourselves as one and as having one vision, I think, um, we can get there. That, that is an interesting thesis. Uh, do you see that that is a unique requirement for Africa to move in unison? Because we do have Latin America, we do have uh, Southeast uh, Asia. Uh, these regions didn't move in unison, but if you look at uh, Indochina, uh, Vietnam, uh, mm. 
Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia, they have not uh, taken a, a regional perspective and yet they have successfully beneficiated minerals. So why do you think in Africa it has to be uh, a collective pan-African effort? Um, um, I think so, given uh, there is a different context um, which differentiates Africa from the rest of the regions, uh, from Indonesia, for example, and the other and the other countries, you, you, we have um, um, a shared, I would say, a shared identity, um, a shared colonial uh, past experience, um, and you have more or less uh, similar economic and um, governance. Uh, structures almost across Africa. There are uh, individual differences, but if you look uh, on a broader picture, you find that there are uh, um, quite a number of commonalities across uh, the region, which would make it more sensible uh, for Africa to move in unison. And uh, number two, uh, mineral distribution. Um, across Africa um, is in such a way that uh, there are minerals you would find in Congo, which you would not find probably uh, in other countries. Um, so that makes it, especially on the critical mineral uh, side, that makes it more interesting uh, for Africa to move in unison so that these uh, disproportionately uh, distributed mineral resources across the countries can be brought together if if we focus on um, on a regional hub right so i like this idea of regional hubs and i'll tell you what it's not so mm. much for political reasons uh, mm. or or um you know colonial uh, legacy reasons because of course mm. Countries like Vietnam were colonized by uh, France for a very long time, Indonesia by the British, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is somebody, many of these countries were colonized by colonial power at some mm -hmm. point. Uh, wh yes. Where I think there is value in uh, creating hubs is that, you know, mineral processes uh, and production of metals and component mm -hmm. parts for that matter requires mm. different types of minerals. Uh, yeah. Iron ore is not, uh, steel is not made from iron ore only. You have to add, say, metallurgical coal, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, and, mm. and, and so to the extent that uh, the region can identify uh, minerals and create hubs based mm. on availability of the necessary mm. uh, mineral substances to, to, to produce alloy, Mm, mm. I think it's a good thing because no one country, as you rightly say, says anything. The second thing is that what it does is that it creates a critical mass uh, enough yep. to justify the investment. Because even when uh, the companies uh, find the minerals, they don't mm. always exist in large enough quantities to provide mm. adequate, uh, you know, uh, investment return. So I think. From that perspective, the idea of hubs is a much mm. stronger value proposition. But but the point is this, that we have the uh, Africa Free Trade uh, Agreement, 
Why has yep. that not made what you are suggesting feasible? Well, um, uh, quite an interesting one. Um, I would say the, the problem is still the same. Um, it's not only the African continental free trade area that hasn't um, realized uh, its key goal. If you look back into history, um, if you go to the Lagos plan of action, for example, it just came with sweet um, promises and nothing happened. Um, if you look at the Africa mining vision, not much is happening uh, on that side. Then comes the Africa continental free trade area. Um, I think we tended to be, uh, well, I'm looking for a proper term uh, to use there. Um, I think we tended to be over ambitious. Um, our leaders tended to be over ambitious when they meet. Um, and um, but when it comes into practice, uh, the usual nationalist uh, perspectives come into the way um, of um, that broader, grand, uh, regional uh, initiatives. So we tend so much to focus on our narrow nationalist uh, perspectives, nationalist um, views uh, that get into the way of uh, regional initiatives. So I would say the Africa continental free trade area suffers uh, again once more uh, from that challenge. So you don't have uh, African countries thinking the same way. So, for example, you uh, the stock of resource nationalism, for example, um, you have quite varying degrees, varying perspectives on resource nationalism across Africa. You have countries which have um, opened their mineral sectors to private foreign investment, and you have countries which tend to think that uh, foreign investors are thieves. Um, and that we can't get enough, uh, we can't get anything from them. So that means um, when you have limited resources and you cannot finance um, the strategy by yourself, you rely on uh, on foreign investment, and at the same time you have uh, differing perspectives on foreign investment, you end up uh, having nothing going on at the regional level. Sure. So a, a couple of things uh, I want to say. So we've sort of gone full cycle. You started off by advocating a pan-Africanist approach and creation of hubs. You are yeah. now ending in a position in which you recognize that there has been a plethora of initiatives by African leaders to try and do exactly that, but that mm -hmm. none of it has uh, been successful. You know, at what point uh, do advocates of pan-Africanism begin to accept that after 60 years of uh, attempts to uh, think and act as one regional bloc, everything we have uh, done as African leaders shows that we can't do it. At, at what point do we uh, use this as evidence to change our policies? Um, <laughs> uh, now I... Uh... 
I think all along the problem has been preaching what we do not want to practice. Um, our um, mouth is speak of Pan-Africanism, our hearts uh, speak of uh, nationalism. And that does not necessarily mean that uh, Pan-Africanism is not uh, relevant um, as of now for Africa. Um, it just means that we need to change our focus. We need to change our, um, our thinking, uh, so to speak. We don't have to put in place uh, Pan-Africanist strategies when uh, really we mean something different. Okay. And I don't think that um, shunning away from Pan-Africanism and then focusing on our narrow nationalist um, perspectives would make us better. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I understand. So there are a couple of countries on the African continent that have succeeded with value addition or, uh, in many mm. Morocco, mm. uh, a state-owned entity, OCP, through mm. uh, phosphate, uh, adds value right through the value chain. It exports yeah. the raw material, but enough is retained to produce uh, fertilizer, and Morocco is a major producer and distributor of fertilizer throughout the region. Mm. That's that alone. South yeah. Africa, on the other hand, uh, beneficiates uh, platinum, uh, gold, uh, mm. and has done uh, iron ore and steel and other products. So we mm. know we have succeeded on, uh, albeit at a modestly relative to others, at national level. Nigeria is now valuating to oil through the Dangote uh, oil refinery in significant ways. So the point I'm, I'm making is that it's not so much whether we like or don't like Pan-Africanism, it's more what does the evidence show us in terms of which one of those strategies uh, succeeds or doesn't succeed. And, and, and I, I do think uh, fact-based policies tend to be more successful than policies mm. that are made on ideology. And, and this Pan-African thing seems to be based at least from what i can see on ideology rather than fact-based experiential uh data but let me move to something else you said yeah. you said that in some countries the perception is that foreigners don't mean us well and that we mm. cannot su succeed unless we are financing ourselves mm. uh, i mean africa isn't unique uh in attracting foreign investment. Uh, yeah. Why would foreign investment in Africa not be successful, uh, but successful elsewhere? We find America, uh, Chinese companies investing in, in uh, the United States agriculture. We find mm -hmm. Japanese uh, companies investing in the United States motor industry. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we find uh, Japanese industries investing in different parts of the world. Why in Africa is foreign investment a swear word? Well, I I think that um, goes down into our negotiation capacity and um, the focus, the, the priority we focus on when we are attracting foreign uh, investment. What do we want to achieve? 
from foreign investment. It doesn't make sense um, that um, you, you practically or literally see that which is called the race to the bottom um, across Africa when you are focusing on attracting investors into your economies. And then when it comes to negotiating the terms, what do you want to achieve from that? I think that's where we get lost. It's not that foreign investors are, are, um, are evil, are looters, are thieves. Uh, it's not necessarily so, but who negotiates on our behalf? Um, if if you if you compose government negotiating teams uh, of people who are uh, whose ethical record is questionable, then you do not expect it to get much from them. Um, if you base your negotiation uh, on um, unstable and unpredictable legal and physical regimes then uh, you end up uh, probably sealing yourself um, and creating opportunities uh, for investors to get much more uh, than you do. So I think the, the, the major challenge is on our, on our part. Uh, who negotiates for us? Um, how are they trained? And how are we sure that uh, they have the capacity to negotiate on equal terms uh, with uh, investors' uh, teams. So the capacity, uh, the ethical record um, of our negotiation teams. Sure. But, I mean, Jeffries, are you sure? I mean, think about it this way. We have 53 member states. Uh, yeah. 60 years average of independence also. Yes. We have all sorts of professionals, uh, different yes. people with different values. Are you sure you can reliably make that statement about this entire continent that our negotiators are either uh, incapacitated, uh, perhaps uh, lacking in patriotism? Are you sure that that is a unique characteristic of African negotiators relative to other regions of the world? Because if so, that's a terrible indictment on uh, the continent's people. Sheila, I, I, I would say um, there are probably several variables when you talk about capacity. We may have uh, very trained uh, professionals um, who have that capacity to negotiate better deals um, on our behalf. But again, that zeroes down to what particular leaders wanted to achieve um, from uh, the deals. Uh, there have been quite a, a couple of examples where um, a couple of examples of corruption uh, involving uh, state leaders uh, and um, uh, mining company foreign investors, uh, so to speak. So if 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 a state leader has uh, a particular preference and has had an engagement with 
particular investors uh, showed engagement, then you do not expect um, that negotiations will be in favor um, of a country, irrespective of how um, the negotiators are uh, capably trained. So you also have that political capacity. Um, what is the force behind pushing the negotiators to negotiate the, the way they do? All right. Let me ask mm. you something. Um, you mentioned quite rightly earlier that with the increase in demand for minerals and specifically yeah. the um, surge for supply yes. and consumption of what are now called minerals that are critical to mm. transition to clean energy, that there is a window of opportunity. Do you think that's the right approach to see mineral value addition through the lens of critical minerals or whether it is better to see mineral value addition as a broad-based uh, economic development framework? Um, uh, both ways. Uh, uh, it's better to see it as broadly based, uh, but again, it's better to differentiate, uh, to determine the differences between um critical minerals for example and 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 the other minerals minerals are very different um you can't have a blanket strategy for mineral value addition that covers every sort of uh minerals um you need different technical capacities you need different um probably different technologies to add uh, to process minerals of different types uh, you'd need a different technology to add value on gold than you'd need one to add value on graphite or than you'd need one to add value on sand uh, and so forth. So you can't just have a blanket uh, strategy that covers uh, all sorts of minerals. It, it just can't work. Mm. Um. Mm. So if you think about the risk of failure, what do you think is the greatest risk uh, facing African countries as they want to pursue this value addition quest? What is the one thing that is likely uh, to get in the way unless they mitigate that risk? Um, uh, I think that would be uh, governance. Explain what you mean by governance, and in what yes. does governance be an impediment? Yes, I, 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 it, it zeroes down into um, how do we manage our affairs? Um, how do we make decisions? How do we engage uh, with the market? Um, how do we set rules um, that govern uh, mineral value addition? Whose uh, voices are prioritized uh, and whose voices are uh, silenced. Uh, so that engagement between the state and the investors and probably the communities, balancing the different perspectives and making sure that you do not leave anyone behind. Uh, you put in place governance uh, systems or structures or strategies that 
capture uh, and balance the interests, uh, competing interests uh, of the state and the investors and um, the public. Um, so, uh, so to speak, I think that's where um, that, that's a major a major risk. Um, right. Yeah. Here's my last question to you. A common yep. narrative uh, in Africa uh, is that if African countries are unsuccessful in value addition, it is the fault of others, including mining companies, for not being supportive or collaborative. Is this uh, the correct assumption? Um, I don't think it's correct. I don't think so. Um, someone who would support some something or someone who is supportable. Um, so I think we need to look at ourselves first um, before pointing fingers, accusing fingers to the external environment. Yes, these uh, investors and uh, international organizations may have part to be blamed for, um, but uh, they wouldn't be blamed if we did not create conditions internally uh, for them to be blamed. So um, I don't think it's an, it's uh, it's correct to say <laughs> if we fail, it's because the the investors and uh, and donors have not supported us. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time, Jeffers. I have enjoyed uh, listening to you, and I suspect the Sheila Khan Extractive Podcast listeners will too. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much too for the opportunity to speak to you.